Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hey, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, on the Gut Check Project, joined by that guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. It's episode 102. Ken, we got a revisitor. What's up? Well, uh, fortunately, we have somebody who is a huge fan favorite and backed by popular demand. We have Taylor Reyes. So if you did not see episode 93 and 93, I say that because it's two parts. It was so good. We had to break it up into two parts. Taylor is a physical therapist with several different specialties, but specifically endo. Uh, metriosis, which we're going to get into in a second, and also pelvic floor therapy. So, Taylor, would you like to reintroduce yourself? Yes, I am Taylor Reyes. As you said, I'm a physical therapist. Um, I work in Farmers Branch. I have my own practice. It's FIRE Physical Therapy. In case you're wondering, FIRE stands for Functional, Intentional, Restorative, and Empowered. So, I do specialize in pelvic floor therapy for men and women, and I also do what's called functional manual therapy. So, it's a total body approach to treatment osteopathic based. Um, I see a little bit of everybody and everything, men, women, um, athletes, postpartum moms, not that they can't be the same, not that postpartum mom can't be an athlete, but a little bit of everything. Yeah. So I love the fact that you take a functional approach to everything. And I'm going to ask a small favor of you so that we have a great show. I have had somewhat of a stressful day. So before we head into this, Can you offer a relaxation technique that we can do here on the Gut Check Project before we head into this podcast? Can you come back for every show? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, I can. And actually, I think we're going to do a two-in-one. So I'll break it down real quick because we know one, diaphragmatic breathing, you know, breathing, engaging the diaphragm is one way to engage the vagus nerve or to improve uh vagal nerve tone, which helps the parasympathetic system, the rest and digest. So we're going to do some diaphragmatic breathing. I'll walk you all through a little exercise. Okay. Um, but at the same time, since we also do, I do TMJ stuff as well. And we all tend to clench and grind. And like, especially if you've been frustrated today, um, you might be tight through your jaw. So when we go through the inhalation process of this, I want you to take your thumbs, dig it up under your chin and sweep it back. Okay. okay. I need that. I am embarrassed to say this, but to, um, next week I have to go get my new night guard because I grind my teeth at night. Oh yeah. Mm. I shattered my night guard. Oh, good for you. Yes. Like, no, I bit bad. through my night guard. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're saying that and I'm like, yes, just, just tell me how to do that. Like yeah. right now, right now. Fix my jaw. Fix my jaw. <laughs> I think we should connect after the show <laughs> because that's a sign. <laughs> Okay. 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 All right, Taylors, everyone, if you're listening to this, do exactly as she says. If you're watching this, watch and also do what she says. Yes. So you might be familiar with four, seven, eight breathing. We're going to take uh, four counts in through the nose and then hold for a count of seven and then exhale through the mouth for a count of eight. Okay. Okay. And then while we're going to go through one round of that and then we're going to add the release in with our hands. Okay. okay. Excellent. So ready? Yeah. Inhale through the nose. One, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, five, six, 
seven, exhale through the mouth, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Good. That way we can slow it down. We increase nasal nitric oxide, which we love a nitric oxide, when we hold, and then we really focus on that CO2 expulsion when we exhale fully. Okay. Okay, so now this next time, because everything's relaxed when we inhale, you wanna take your thumbs, find the inside of the jaw, like the jaw bone, and you're, they're gonna start together at the front, and then as you inhale, you're gonna sweep them back to where they line up right underneath your ears. Okay. I'll go all the way back. Okay. Yeah, it might, and if you wanna play for a second, it might feel a little ouchy, or just a little like, ooh, that's kinda tight. Uh-huh. You know you're on the right okay. spot if we do that. Okay, so ready? We're gonna pair that with the inhale. So ready, inhale, one, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, five, six, seven, exhale through the mouth, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. Do you feel less? You look like a different person, Ken. I feel like a different person, Eric. <laughs> we want to welcome to the show, Taylor. Today is March 1st, Endometriosis Awareness Month. Welcome to the Cut Check Project. A new tone, NPR style. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. That was awesome. Yeah, actually, it was, actually it was yeah. great. So I recommend people set like a two or three minute timer so they're not work, uh, focused on reps. And then that way they can just take a moment to engage their parasympathetic nervous system. That's really cool. Yeah. It's, oh, Hi. before we had her on, I did the little trick that you did to Eric and it to Devin. She couldn't move her neck. And I got her moving her neck completely. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. If you look at um, Taylor's Instagram, which is, what is your handle? Uh, Dr. Taylor Reyes. At Dr. Taylor Reyes, she goes through a way to manipulate the tongue so that you can get more mobility out of your neck. And it seems crazy and it works and things like that, like the like this. This feels good. I feel better. Yeah, I feel great. Yeah. I'm going to call my dentist and say, you don't have to order me eight more of those. I ordered eight thinking I would just keep biting through them. <laughs> you are ambitious. Well, that, I mean, that is something I do. I do. I do some oral facial myofunctional therapy. So I work with dentists to specifically aid patients through the oral appliance process. Like if they're doing adult airway expansion mm. or if they're doing tongue tie releases, may, hey, maybe there's some fascial restrictions in there that's creating a tongue tie when maybe there's not actually one. I think we talked a little bit about that. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, We did. But yeah, so, you know, again, because, you know, we could go off on so many tangents, but there is, you know, if you're clenching uh, your jaw, you may, not always, but you may be clenching your pelvic floor. And that's going to create this overactivity loop. So not all pelvic floor patients have TMJ issues and not all TMJ patients have pelvic floor issues, but a lot of times they can exist together. together. Yeah. Yeah. And then we treat both. I know that we're going to talk about endometriosis today, but one of the coolest things that you discussed in episode 93 is we always talk about core muscles, and she really went into detail that one of the forgotten core muscles is the pelvic floor. Yes. A third of the core is the pelvic floor. Something totally forgotten. That men and and women have. Everybody. All humans with the pelvis. Which Which is most, Ken. Most most humans have it. Most humans do have a pelvis. So that was so interesting that I could talk a whole nother two more episodes on that. 
so just check out episode 93 and then keep requesting Taylor to come back covering different topics because clearly there's a lot more stuff that we can cover with her. But the exciting thing is that endometriosis, it's Endometriosis Awareness Month. And before you go, I have no idea what that is. I don't have that. It is affecting you because endometriosis actually affects at least 10% of all women probably more because a lot of it is not actually recognized. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So, and it causes all kinds of issues, but we're going to let Taylor get into it. Yeah, I think you should. It's uh, something even as a young person, when I was first told about it uh, by a girlfriend that she suffered from it, I had, I don't, I don't have any sisters. I had, I just had no idea what she was up against. And I, I saw her kind of writhe in pain a handful of different times. And, uh, so I didn't fully understand until I got a little bit older and then, you know, went through and had a little bit of medical training. But anyhow, so Taylor. The- One more thing before we start there. As a gastroenterologist, I'm just learning how many of my patients probably are suffering from endometriosis oh, when yeah. they've been labeled as having irritable bowel. Yeah. Or functional bowel pain. That's fact. And that's what I love having people like Taylor on to educate so that I can go back and now when I see my patients go, let's consider this as an option. Yeah. So, all right. What is endometriosis? Yes. Okay. So, but not to put y'all on the spot and not to answer a question with a question, but I'm going to do both. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah. So, and there's, there's no wrong answer, which I mean, I mean, technically there is, but I would like to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hold on. (laughs) You're stressing me out. (laughs) Okay. So I would like to hear from both of you just from, you know, your clinical experience and, and how you navigate day to day, what, what do you know of endometriosis? Like, I mean, it doesn't have to go deep, but just like, what are kind of the top main symptoms or, you know, how would you typically identify it? I would just, from what I know is just probably enhanced pain during menstruation. Uh, and that, well, that's pretty much it. Unless somebody else has already identified that it's involved somewhere else. I'm going to go ahead and admit that's probably the extent of what I know. Mm-hmm. So as a gastroenterologist, when I start thinking about it, realizing that there's a hormonal component to it, when I get somebody that has abdominal pain, I at least want to try and say, do do you notice the pain increasing during certain times of the month? Mm -hmm. And then I have to be aware of it because since I know that endometriosis can actually cause scarring, patients with this can sometimes be, have a more difficult colonoscopy. So Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in the, is this going to be a tough colon? Are they going to have restricted mobility? Are they at higher risk for perforation? All reasons why you should really um, understand why somebody could possibly have that, the scarring issue. So superficially, I know it in relation to my job. Right. And, right. But I have not really delved into it from a from a treatment yeah. perspective sure. for endometriosis because yeah. I get the patients from the gynecologist. Yes. And I think you get a fist bump too because that's great. Thank you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was waiting. In case you weren't watching that, I was like, come on. <laughs> this is right here. Do it. Do it. So, and little, I'm going to pin something here that we need to talk about in a minute or in a little, little down the road is managing endo via systemic, managing system, systemic inflammation, which mm-hmm. gut health. So we're going to come back to that. Okay. Um, so yes, endometriosis, you typically have painful periods and yes, it can create IBS type symptoms. It can create constipation, diarrhea, uh, rectal bleeding, all three, uh, it can create 
rectal spasms. I mean, it can it can really create a lot of discord in the pelvic region. So one thing, you know, even in PT school, when we, I walked out of PT school, I learned that, learned it as if your patient has 10 of 10 pain in their periods and they're bleeding through their pants like three times a day, they, that's endometriosis. That was it. And then that was kind of all we learned about it necessarily. Um, even taking some higher level continuing ed courses after the fact that had to do with pelvis or some pelvic floor stuff that we didn't really go past that. Um, as I've started to learn more and more and more and you read more and more and more, we're realizing that endometriosis, yes, it affects one in 10 women. One, you can typically, they're finding that you're typically born with it. So it's not necessarily something that just develops over mm. time. Um, this is, and I think to just um, illustrate the complexity, sorry, I have a hair in my eyeball. Um, illustrate the complexity of this disease is that there have been 20 reported cases in biological males. Whoa. Yeah. Of endometriosis. Right. It's like, I thought this was a gynecological disorder. Well, not necessarily. It's an estrogen issue and it's a issue of endometrial cells. Um, sorry, this hair is like driving me nuts. There we go. Uh, so that being said, kind of coming back to the definition of endometriosis, mm -hmm. it's essentially like rogue endometrial cells that end up outside of the endometrium. So the endometrium would be the lining of the uterus, what is supposed to either help with implantation of you know, an egg or what sloughs off during the period, mm -hmm. right? So for whatever reason, there is several working theories, but for whatever reason, these little rogue cells find themselves outside of the uterus. It can be on the ovaries, it can be on the fallopian tubes, it can be on the bladder, and we now know that it can be on the rectum, it can be in the intestines. It has been documented in literally every part of the body. Yes, 24 hours ago, I would have said it has been documented everywhere in the body except the spleen. And then this morning, I found an article of a laparoscopic finding of, endo, of endometriosis in the spleen as of December 2020. Really? So it, it's it's a whole body issue. When you say whole body, you mean outside of the peritoneal cavity as well? In the brain, in the nose, in your thumb. What? Yep. Yep. Now, rare. Those instances sure. are yeah. rare. It is most commonly found wow. in the, like abdominal pelvic region. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you hear that, it makes you kind of step back and think like, huh. Like what, what else are we missing? So there's, um, and, and in case I forget to drop this resource, it is one of my absolute favorite resources out there for providers, whether you're a physician, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or a patient. Um, it's, it's a book called Beating Endo by Dr. Iris Orbach and Amy Stein. Um, Iris Orbach is a, a OBGYN in California. Mm -hmm. I think she practices in California and New York. And Amy Stein is a physical therapist in New York. And they're both amazing humans. And they have uh, probably the most succinct resource I have seen. And it really dives through all of these, like, crazy details, right? It, it, it's, it has a lot of treatment options or self-management options. So in case I forget to mention that, if we'll you, put in the show notes. If you yeah, think definitely. you know anybody with endo, mm -hmm. even if you don't have it yourself, if you think you have a loved one that does, you need to read this if you if it's a, just another way to love them because then you can be even more aware. So we have these uh, rogue cells that just find themselves anywhere in the body. And uh, I think it's important to understand that they, they produce their own estrogen. Right. So when we think, okay, why, wh how, how is it that maybe a, a biological male could have endometriosis symptoms or symptoms from mm -hmm. the, it's, they typically tend to be estrogen dominant 
mm-hmm. their findings. And it's, it's separate from the um, hormones that, you know, you would, if someone has a, gets their ovaries removed, why would they still have endometriosis symptoms? Or what, if they get their hist, their uterus removed, why would they still have endometriosis symptoms? It's because there's its own driving systemic inflammation. So wait, uh-huh. I just want to clarify that because that is not how I was taught in medical school. Mm-hmm. It is endometrial tissue that I was taught is responsive to estrogen, but you're saying that it can produce its own estrogen. They're finding that it can produce its own estrogen. That's, that's crazy. Wild. That's cr- wild because you always think, well, it has to be either the adrenal gland or the gonadal tissue that'll actually produce those types of sex hormones. Do you think, and I don't know this, do you think that any of this is still tied to some type of timing and release in communication with the thyroid for it to know that it's going to stimulate like this? I mean, if there's a universal release like for this to originate, mm-hmm. is there still some master gland operative here? So we do know that Hashimo- people with endometriosis oftentimes have Hashimoto's thyroiditis as well. Okay. So, you know, as far as like the, like causation correlation, there is so much what, what I think when you sit and read all the resources that are out there, you really have to dig. Cause if you just Google endometriosis, you're not going to see this stuff. You have to dig and dig and dig to find this stuff or know where to look. Um, I think that there is so much that we don't know about how complex this disease is. Well, once you say that it could be anywhere in the body and now that you're saying that there can even be a component of it producing its own estrogen, then that will feed upon itself. This is, this is brand new to me. Totally yeah. new. This well, is I'm not just, at all what I was taught. I'm just thinking of the long complex here for it to happen. I mean, it sounds like it's, it's honestly, it sounds like it's tissue that's gone awry and that it's going to play upon other, other glands that are, that are trying to function per normal, you know, from pituitary to thyroid to mm-hmm. anything else that could release uh, any type of signal. So not yeah. to derail, but uh, no, go ahead. no, I mean, and that's, that's the thing is that this, this tissue, um, these, you know, whether you want to refer to them as ectopic cells or glands or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they, they kind of for just for imagery sake or just conversation sake, it's like they ooze their own inflammatory material throughout. It doesn't have to be just related to the period. Mm-hmm. So it now symptoms are often cyclical in nature. So when you're talking about somebody's history, if you're talking to a patient and they're mm-hmm. saying, Hey, I experienced this, 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 and it tends to start happening maybe around ovulation or after or coming up to the period or mm-hmm. during the period. Like that's the things you want to look out for. But it could be, especially if there's adhesions, we can also refer to these cells as adhesions or implants. If there's adhesions on the pelvic nerves, right, that can create what someone might think is sciatica or ridiculous symptoms down uh, the way. They might mm-hmm. think it's a lumbar disc issue when really it's no these these adhesions are on the pelvic or lumbar nerves. So might some people who, I think what you're describing is someone might think that they've got sciatica and really once they break it down or talk to someone like Taylor can, they'll find out that it's cyclical and then they're going to end up finding out. Yeah, of course. I think that possibly what you're suffering from every fourth week, your sciatica that flares up and then goes away is actually related to Right. Yes. Or it's like, hey, we can get it better, but it plateaus and it does just oh, and we don't get okay. it quite where we want it to be. Because again, it is reducing inflammation in sure. the body. Whether that inflammation is being driven mechanically from, you know, restricted muscles or a tight joint or weakness or strength. That why does physical therapy work or why does working out help reduce the pain? Here's the other thing that I want to clarify that, that makes this disease so 
tricky is that you can have what we'd call category four or like stage four. There's two different classifications depending on who you're referencing, but you know, air quotes, the most severe mm -hmm. and you could have zero symptoms or maybe, you know, a person doesn't realize they're having symptoms, mm -hmm. right? They don't have painful periods. They Maybe they don't have fertility issues because co the common symptoms are fertility and painful periods or heavy bleeding, right? Or infertility. So maybe they don't have any of these. And for whatever reason, they just end up with a, a laparoscopy, like someone goes in uh, into the abdomen to do a di diagnostic procedure or exploratory procedure. And they're like, oh, look at that you have all these adhesions, you have, you know, what they'd call a frozen pelvis where it's just, everything is locked up together. So maybe, I feel like we've, we've jumped really deep into here. Maybe we should just kind of just recap a little bit. So endometriosis itself yeah. is the endometrial tissue is where mm -hmm. it's normally found is within the uterus. It's just as you described as sloughed off. Right. And what we're describing, I believe, is mm -hmm. that these endometrial cells, for whatever reason, are appearing and just as you described a few minutes ago, in various places throughout the body, almost always, I would assume, on organs or locations in and around the peritoneal area. Mm -hmm. So bladder, uh, bowel, um, I don't know if they're on the kidneys. I'm sure it could happen they've on the kidneys. They've been found in the kidneys. Ovaries for certain. They've been found in ovaries. They've been found in the cardiac tissue. Okay. Whoa. So Lungs, cardiac, that means so if they're making it into the... There's the catamenal, I think I'm saying that right. I read it more than I talk about it. Catamenial, uh, like basically around their uh, someone's period, they'll, the, there's endometriosis in the lung tissue and they start to bleed and then they end up with spontaneous pneumothorax. Well, okay. okay. So that actually jumps right ahead on really why I was wanting to do the, uh -huh. the recap because uh -huh. we talk about the, the scarring and, and I know when the endometrial tissue is sloughed off, we associate it with, with bleeding in periods and menstruation. But I didn't know, I know that uh, if, if these inflammatory tissues were to have these uh, cycles over and over again, we've discussed that there would be scarring. So are in these little localized infl uh, in, inflamed zones, I guess, they also bleed? Is that, is that true? Are they, or do they, yeah, they so, might typically be bleeding? So it could, and you know, that's as far as like answering that yes or no, as uh -huh. far as what is actually happening, yes, the idea is that it is creating some type of inflammatory material, uh -huh. right? And from what I understand, it would be bleeding too. So one of, if, you know, this is actually one of my favorite references in that beating endo book, um, Dr. Orbach's, one of Dr. Orbach's patient would get nosebleeds during her period. Oh, and then they're like, oh, they found out that it's actually endometrial tissue that's in her nose. How wild. So now that's rare, right? Like, yeah, and, but and I mean, I, it makes sense verify, though. Yeah. But this is, so using that same example, the fact that it can bleed and it, it could be anywhere, but if it's in the pelvis, for instance, now we know that the endometrial lining during the cyclical nature, if there is no fertilization of an egg that implants mm -hmm. and then starts, it becomes a pregnancy, the lining sloughs. Mm -hmm. So... I can not remember the exact cellular process, but it was something that we had to learn in medical school. It sloughs, it bleeds, sloughs, and it's expelled. Now, if the same tissue is doing that, but there's no way to expel it, then that means it becomes an inflammatory process mm -hmm. that the body says we need to get rid of that mm -hmm. blood that's just laying around over there. And over time, over time, that's now it makes sense. That's how the scar tissue can form. Mm -hmm. 
when we talk about how, like in my world, once again, that like the colon can become adhesed to the pelvic wall, to you the want, abdominal wall. You want to describe adhesions just in case people don't really know? What yeah, so adhesions, essentially whenever I refer to adhesions, it's scar tissue. So scar tissue where you can have any organ with inflammation that takes place can actually form the inflammatory process as the body heals, scar is formed, and it can actually attach two organs or two, in my world, it would be two pieces of the outside wall of the colon that get essentially glued together. Yeah. And then they don't move well. Nothing, you know, it doesn't go there. And now when you're describing, not to shift gears real quick, but it makes total sense why you're saying you could have a grade four endometriosis and it could be everywhere or you could have the littlest amount. But if that thing is touching a nerve, that's going to create a tremendous amount of symptoms. Sure. If you have one in your nose that you bleed every month, there's no ignoring that one. No. So it's, this is really fascinating that mm-hmm. it's the ultimately... It's not so much even that the tissue's out there. It's that the tissue is estrogen responsive. And as you're saying, could produce its own estrogen, create its own cycle. But every time it does this, there's no way to expel it. The body has to get rid of it. Naturally, that's what a menstrual cycle is, is to expel that. Sure. Well, it's just wild when you describe some of the other places that I just had no idea that... uh this endometrial tissue had been found and when you when you said the brain i mean i'm just thinking in the skull mm-hmm. having an issue of intracranial pressure build up mm-hmm. from from just random bleeds like that yeah. uh, if, if you have it in the lung just like you said it's a parenchymal tissue in the lung begins to bleed i mean that's like it's like instant chf <coughs> it's it's really bizarre mm-hmm. Well, and so, you know, like, like the pericardial or the uh, cardiac tissue reference, you know, in a lot of these studies, you'll see that it's found in autopsies. Okay. So it's like, well, were they symptomatic or maybe they were symptomatic and never found relief? Well, let me talk about that really quick. Because when you say autopsies, my understanding is since the majority of endometriosis is found in women of childbearing years, um, when people die of old age... I could imagine that the ectopic endometrial tissue possibly shrinks, gets missed a lot because people at 25 that are having this are not dying. Right. I'm bringing this up because I'm thinking of all different types of things that we call functional. Mm-hmm. It was cyclical vomiting, cyclical vomiting syndrome. Why in the world does somebody show up at the ER? And it's how often does it happen? I don't know. It's just random. It's like once a month. Oh, oh, Nausea and vomiting and bloating are all symptoms of endometriosis. Mm. Yeah. And it wouldn't have occurred to me until today. No, I hadn't even thought about that. I'm like, literally, you could explain, like when all else is not there, mm-hmm. on a board test. So every medical student knows this. Delaney, if you're listening to this, Delaney's our uh, medical student that does our Instagram and she was our former tech and super excited that she's doing well in medical school. But like on a test... Disseminated tuberculosis and tertiary syphilis can be anything. Now I'm going to put disseminated endometriosis can do anything as well. Yeah. You would be right on all three of those. So whenever you get asked a question, like if you're on rounds, you're like, what can cause <laughs> abnormal gait, <laughs> urinary retention? And, you know, and they're thinking some weird, obscure diagnosis. You just go endometriosis. And they're like, you're insane. I'm like, no, you're insane, my <laughs> friend. Let me tell you. All of it. Well, and, you know, before I forget to mention this, you know, a lot of people think that or providers think that you can have a hysterectomy and that's going to cure endometriosis. One, there is no cure. 
You can have a lot of treatment. You can have an excision surgery. Hey, next time you say that, say spoiler alert. So now everybody's just turning off the podcast. They're like, there's no cure. I'm doomed. <laughs> oh, I, I think I lost my train of thought. No, no. <laughs> no but, yep. but we are going to tell you how to help it. So, yes. so, so people, might not be a cure. People think but, that they might be able to solve the issue by getting hysterectomy, yes. but they can't. There, there are ways to significantly improve your symptoms to where you do not have symptoms anymore. So... By that's what I want to clarify that one, you know, after saying sure. there is no cure, uh, but you know, you can do all of the above, all the surgeries and it can still come back. So if you take the uterus out and people think that's the endometrial lining, is it because it can produce its own estrogen and the ovaries are still there? It, people think that if you do a hysterectomy, it's going to fix endometriosis because they don't understand endometriosis. And, and I just say that because there's, and I, and I don't think anybody's going to purposely take, I, you know, you hope nobody's going to purposely take out a uterus thinking it's going to cure one thing when it's not, but it's, you know, a lot, there's people who still believe that it's caused just from retrograde menstruation, which is one working theory, but it is not the only theory. And we also know that most people are typically born with it. There was a study done in Italy. I can't remember when, but it is within the last 10 years. And they, they did, um, auto, like, you know, women who were pregnant, uh, passed away, whatever autopsies and the fetal autopsy report showed that 9% of fetuses had endo implants already. So then we know the statistics on, uh, women and, you know, we can kind of like, we could go on and on and on about, or not go on and on, but we could talk about like, what are the risk factors, you know, dioxin exposure increases maternal dioxin exposure, increases risk. Um, dioxin you get if you burn hexane. And I learned that because of the spill in Ohio. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's really. <gasps> yeah. Well, I think it's, isn't it also in, in like pesticides? And also in pesticides, I learned today. I, I believe not. Now I'm like second guessing myself, but no, I, believe, I believe, yeah. I trust you. Is I, there going to be a huge uptick in endometrial oh issues in that part we of the need, country? We need to cross check this the last 30 seconds, but yes, the, the meaning of dioxins, let's dioxins, let's uh, cross check. We are clearly maybe, experts in I don't dioxins. Know. <laughs> maybe there could be a huge uptick. So that's something to look out along with other upticks of other. You keep talking. I will Google this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, a hysterectomy will not cure it. Uh, if you have adenomyosis, which is I like, I mean, most people with endometriosis. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. I typed in diox and it came up dioxin Ohio. Did it really? Oh. Yes, it did. So just okay. saying, I think Eric's on. Um, adenomyosis, if you, are you familiar with that? So it's essentially endometriosis, endometrial cells within the uterine wall. Mm -hmm. So it's not outside of the uterus, but it's also not within the uh, endometrium where it's supposed to be. It's in the muscle itself. It's in the muscle itself. So the, the problem with that is if you have adenomyosis to fix those symptoms, most likely you do need a hysterectomy. Uh -huh. So there's that fine line. It's yeah. like some people are like, well, I had a hysterectomy. And the symptoms kind of be the same, I guess. Yeah, they can yeah. be very similar. So the heavy bleeding. So with adenomyosis, it, it's get it, it all goes into the history taking. Typically with adenomyosis, periods last more than seven days. The bleeding is very uh, heavy. You have um, clots bigger than a quarter, recurrent miscarriages, because you can get pregnant with all of this. Sure. Um, um, you know, you can have some of that GI upset, a, a feeling of fullness in the lower abdomen, yeah. bloating, right? Um, but, you, you know, there are some people doing, um, and the term is just blanking on me, but they'll go in and basically cut out the, the either the focal adhesions or the, the diffuse adhesions, like the, the cells that are spattered about the muscle wall. But the, the problem with that is if someone's wanting to um, 
if a goal is fertility, like if they want to carry a baby later on, that can change the integrity of the uterine wall, right? So it's like, there's a lot of research being done and they're promising studies, but as of right now, at least, you know, as of today at, you know, whatever time it is, it's not really a viable option to do that. Um, so if you are wanting to just completely get rid of the adenomyosis, a hysterectomy is is the route to go. Now you can still manage it uh, naturally, like you can endometriosis in some of the ways we'll talk about at some point. Um, but there was a reason why we were, why were we talking, why did I bring that up? Well, I think that if I recall, you were describing how um, endometriosis oh, yes. is not just some focal event that can be solved with a hysterectomy. Yes, and okay. with or with menopause. Or with menopause. So yes, and and you know just to, to clarify, estrogen does like it's like throwing a a, a a match into gasoline, right? It does like really increase the symptoms. That's uh-huh. why you do why it is cyclical, um, but. It, when you go into menopause, you can still have some GI symptoms related to endometriosis. Now, it, it it's a lot better, you know, it's a lot better typically, uh, and people, their, their symptoms are much more manageable or it doesn't really impact their quality of life as much, um, but it doesn't go, it doesn't just go away. Do women mm. who suffer from endometriosis during their childbearing years tend to not have the flare-ups while they are pregnant? So... <laughs> which is interesting, not, not while they're pregnant, not typically, sure. but you know, G, GI, it, it, when you're pregnant, it's so hard to tell what's what. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I think that's, I, this, this is where I'm going to like throw something in there. Technically endometriosis is not an autoimmune condition mm-hmm. by textbook, but if it, you know, walks like a duck, talks like a duck, why aren't we calling it a duck? I mean, it's, it's, uh, reactive based on the immune system. There is no cure. It's typically, there's a, a huge genetic driver, you know, the saying that genetics uh, loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. Like it, it, if you compare it to any other autoimmune condition and how you would go about managing it, it's very similar. So as for, and I say that in regards to expectations when you're managing a client or when you're teaching a client how to manage it. If you, if you look at it more of autoimmune-ish, not saying it is autoimmune, nobody come at me. <laughs> but <laughs> if, you know, if, you, if you shift your expectations, then it, it makes it easier to understand what the long-term road is. That makes like. total sense. So basically, all endometrial people should not be seeing gynecologists. They should go to rheumatologists is what you're saying. We need to send the endometriosis people to rheumatologists. I think there needs to be a completely different specialty. For that. Rheumatologists treat autoimmune diseases. Right. Well, because you can have elevated ANA with um, endometriosis. There's a lot of, there's no one blood work. So as far as diagnostics goes, there's no singular lab value that can indicate endometriosis. It doesn't show up on diagnostic diagnostic imaging either, unless you have an endometrioma or your, which is like the big... um, you could also call it the chocolate cyst, like that big ball of endometrial goo, essentially that you know is show that shows up on ultrasound. Sure. Um, uh, you know, an, an ultrasound an ultrasound may show an enlarged uterus, which could indicate um, adenomyosis. You know, and it uh, certainly fibroids are going to come up, but you can those implants can be like the microscopic. They can be this uh, like the size of a, a pepper flake. Right, that's not going to show up on an MRI, and that's what makes this really hard. Is that there's no blood, there's no blood work, there's no one uh, diagnostic imaging test you can do. The only gold standard is a, patho- a confirmed pathology report after a like a laparoscopy. Yeah, 
The problem with laparoscopies, of course, is we know that that in itself can create inflammation. And adhesions. And adhesions. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So to circle back really quick, and I want to talk about the autoimmune thing in a second. Yeah. You're both right. Dioxins and dioxin-like compounds, uh, DLCs are a group of chemical compounds that are persistent organic pollutants in the environment. They're mostly byproducts of burning. So you're both right in the sense that it can come from various pollutants, including pesticides and whatever, and whatever the Ohio train was carrying, then yes, definitely dioxins are everywhere in the air. The reason why I like the idea of you referring it to autoimmune is that it's a little bit of tongue in cheek when I say refer to a rheumatologist, because that's where we unload our autoimmune people, mm. because they are specialists and trying to figure out what is the exact thing. And so many times they will actually come up with a non-specific autoimmune disorder. But by definition, what you're saying is it's recurrent. The body's reacting to it. It results in inflammation. Rheumatoid arthritis is inflammation of the joint versus osteoarthritis, which is trauma to the joint. And so one, the body continues to attack it. If you have a cyclical version of something that the body produces and then results in inflammation, by definition, that is autoimmune. Autoimmune, yeah. That's fascinating. Think about it. The reason why I like that is because when you can sit with somebody and say, look, this is something that we need to manage and we're going to do some different techniques and send you to a therapist to work on this or whatever, but this is not a wave of magic wand and you're cured. That's what you meant by there is no cure. Correct. Correct. I mean, there, the, the thing is, is like you can bring the inflammation down significantly, right? To where you're asymptomatic or it doesn't impact your quality of life. And that's kind of the goal, right? Like, it, it, you know, it, we go back to like disc herniations. You know, I'll have a patient that brings me their imaging and they're like, yeah, I have a, a herniation at this level or I have a bulge at this level. I'm like, well, do you have pain? No. Okay, that's cool. Like, you know, we are we all have bulges and herniations and rotator cuff tears. I mean, the statistic is, you know, 20% of 20-year-olds have rotator cuff tears, 30% of 30-year-olds, 40% of 40-year-olds, so on and so forth. And our body is designed for wear and tear. So, you know, if it's not impacting your quality of life, like, don't worry about it. Like, let's worry about all the other things you can worry about. So... That's a therapist perspective. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Speaking of therapist perspective, so we have this constellation of symptoms that can happen. So the bottom line is when there is some sort of connection to possibly menstrual cycle, really start perking up and going, okay, this could be endometriosis. We know that it can implant anywhere. We know that it can cause all different kinds of symptoms. And you briefly went over, I wanted to ask you about the diagnosis, but you kind of covered it, which is, it's really hard to diagnose. It's very hard. Yeah, you can, so a, a specialist can sit there and listen to all the symptoms and uh, maybe do a pelvic exam to look for what, what they'd call a boggy uterus, like kind of oh, squishy, yeah. like for adenomyosis, or look for adhesions. But, you know, intra-rater reliability versus inter-rater reliability, any palpation exam, right? Like, so when somebody's touching something, what they feel may be slightly different than what another provider feels. So you, you take it with a grain of salt. So someone would listen to the history, do that uh, physical exam and then say, I think it's very likely that you have endometriosis. This is how we want to move forward. And, you know, the right now, the, the, your best bets, you know, I'm, I'm, I have one foot in the holistic crunchy world and one foot in the Western med world, because I think there's room for both and they compl they can complement each totally other really agree. well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things where excision surgery, and I'm gonna, uh, not ablation, not ablations, 
not ablation surgery, but yeah. excision surgery excision, yeah. by an excision specialist. And right now in the United States, there's left less than 50 truly qualified excision specialists. When you discuss excision, are you talking about the uterine lining or are you talking about the exogenous surg- the tissue? The surgical procedure of excising, cutting out the, t- the disease from the root. Of the uterus or of? of the endometrio- endi- endometriosis. So ectopic tissue excision. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, how it's treated. So once, you know, once uh, uh, classically an OBGYN says, yes, I think you have endometriosis, let's go in there. Um, or maybe they're like, hey, well, you have a fibroid, let's go in to remove it. And they're like, oh, by the way, there's all this endometrial, endometrial tissue in there. Um, the gold standard now is to excise it, which is a different surgical procedure than ablation. So they're both laparoscopic, meaning that it's minimally invasive, right? Mm-hmm. They go in with the, um, like the keyhole surgery, but instead of burning or cauterizing the tissue, like in an ablation, they're actually cutting it out. So I want to, this is a laparoscopic procedure yes. where they see the tissue, uh-huh. you're just hunting for it, it becomes mm-hmm. a, a game of scavenger, mm-hmm. and they cut it and they cut it out, not burning it. Correct. Because the burning is what I thought they always did. So. Well, that's been that's been what they do, but now they're finding that recurrence rates are much higher with ablation surgeries, and people end up having multiple surgeries when they do ablations. Fascinating. Um, excision surgeries specifically have a, a lower recurrence rate. It can still recur, but the rate is much lower, and it typically has better outcomes because you're not you're you're cutting it out versus burning it down. You're creating more inflammation and adhesions when you essentially burn it. And possibly more seeding, because now you're spreading, that's almost like a, mm-hmm. it's almost like a metastatic cancer. You're not going to sit there and- You just you just it, took right where my, my mind was, was going when, when you were describing that. It reminds me, it's almost like an internal Mohs surgeon. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's very, being very precise removing the tissue without disturbing the neighboring tissue. So when you go to an excision specialist, they're going to say, we're going to go in there. This could take two to four hours. Wow. And they're going to literally turn over every single structure. And if they say, hey, I think, you know, you might have diaphragmatic endo or pericardial, then they may have a cardiothoracic surgeon on call. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah. But just, I was just, I was just in my mind, I'm thinking, you may not know all of the all the spots that this endometrial tissue is going to arise from. So that actually makes a lot of sense. And actually I was curious if you've ever happened to run across, do they ever seed to have the tissue become responsive by possibly giving some estrogen so that you could identify it while you're in there? Maybe you end up finding some weeping spots. That's, that's a really good, I have absolutely no idea. I think that's a really good thought. Um, but you know, that's one reason why you, if you are seeking a surgery, you want to find one of these excision trains, like specialty trained surgeons. Uh-huh. Um, I care is a, a great resource for that. Um, but you always want to interview your surgeons. Um, but there there's, these tissues. Is I care better specifically for this or is it other to diseases? To find endometriosis experts, surgeons wow, and cool. therapists. I care better.com. Show notes, show notes. Show notes. Um, so it can present as like, you know, what you think is kind of those like red blebby, like smushy oh, things, yeah. but it could also be the powder burns, like more of that black and blue tissue. Uh-huh. It could look like white kind of opaque tissue. It could look like little flecks of pepper. I mean, it, there's 
so many ways it can present. So you'll have someone who, you know, had suspected endo, did the surgery with their OB, general OBGYN, and they said, oh, we found nothing. They take those same images, the pictures they took from the surgery, they take it to an excision specialist. And she's like, there's endo right there. And they hmm. can see it on the images. So that's, it's not, and it, again, it's just like, you don't know what you don't know. Sure. And I think that's one, one thing I want to make very clear, like anybody listening to it, like, you know, maybe, maybe you do have endometriosis and your healthcare provider hasn't caught it yet. If they have caught it, like that's freaking awesome, you know, and, and you want to promote them as a resource for somebody who can catch it because this stuff people end up, I mean, it takes average seven to 12 years to get a proper diagnosis. So one of the things I was thinking about is how many young women get put on birth control pills due to painful issues Mm -hmm. and what is the effect of birth control pills on endometriosis? Yeah. So, you know, birth control pills can definitely help. Um, It's going to regulate your hormones. So it can reduce some of the pain related to that. Mm -hmm. But you also don't consider, you know, there is a side effect with every medication you take. Right. And so being on birth control for a prolonged period, they are finding that can uh, increase impact your ability to synthesize certain vitamins and X, Y, and Z. I think birth control is probably the lesser of evils. One of the things, especially in teens, that I think is very important to note note is that doctors are putting teens on the, oh gosh, the GNRH, the, like Lupron. Um, oh, uh, the Lupron? The, the gonadotropic. Um, the gonadotropin releasing hormone? Yes. GNRH? That, yeah, they're putting them on that as like kind of first first line of care. And that, that can have a long-term, very impa- the very adverse uh, events on your development as a- Yeah, I was gonna a, say. Well, that's, yeah. a whole, yeah. that's a whole separate podcast that we need to do yeah. because I was coming across some information also greatly affecting your risk of anxiety and depression later in life by being on this type of hormone therapy that like the birth control thing i would love to have you back on and we can like tackle that succinctly i think what taylor is saying is that that choice comes with some serious yes exactly and i and i'm not the pharmaceutical specialist right this is just more of like what i see in practice and what i've read and what i know um but you know bone density right it's going to affect if you're on that medication for a prolonged period it's going to affect your bone density these are kiddos severely yeah sure it's like okay maybe you can get up now out of bed and go do your business like you can live life you can go to school but you are going to have x y and z to consider and you cannot be on it long term and the the people that have to do these hormone therapies do have to go in for like a bone density scans and and different tests regularly to make sure that they aren't trending downward too much so all that to say you know the the primary line of care for endometriosis naturally would be anti-inflammatory nutrition because we do want to kind of control that immune response systemic inflammation uh pelvic floor therapy and we're gonna i'm gonna put that because we're going to get more into that in a second here. Yeah. So we'll just put that and we'll shelve it and we'll come right back to that. Yes, let's come back to that. And then downregulation of your nervous system. I just want to say there is a, there's a distinct parallel whenever you were describing um, autoimmune diseases and the lack of inclusion of endometriosis itself. But if you had someone who had rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or any of those types of diseases, um, a rheumatoid specialist is going to have them on an anti or a low inflammatory diet regimen, et cetera. Oh, I would love to think that every rheumatologist will discuss diet, but you, <laughs> you are so. probably wrong. I mean, the one that I was hoping everybody went to. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love how you said anti-inflammatory diet because 
anti-inflammatories by nature. So what we do with autoimmune disease is we just go, oh, well, you have your body attacking yourself. Take this umbrella thing that completely disrupts whatever cascade of the inflammatory process. Eric and I, early on in the whole COVID thing, we did a whole thing on the adaptive and innate immune system. And when you realize the cytokines involved in everything, and we were talking, we're like, wow, we just are just throwing drugs at these different TNF blockers, interleukin blockers, hoping that it'll stop this cascade, mm -hmm. which is probably why we're piss poor at really kind of slowing progression of a lot of diseases. Yeah. But anyways, so yes, that one rheumatologist that looks at diet, let's, one. let's use that one. He'll be in the show notes. Or she will be in the show notes. <laughs> yes, somebody, somebody's <laughs> going to need some show notes. Anyway, um, so Ken, you wanted to address... Uh, so this is in my reading of endometriosis and what what the biggest thing is so far if i have this and i'm listening to this i'm going wow it's hard to diagnose i can't get rid of it and it can cause dang near anything and possibly go anywhere it seems a little doom and gloom at this point but i would like to know why you pelvic floor specialist tmj specialist endometriosis specialist how does taylor reyes possibly help somebody that I refer to you with endometriosis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously it is, it is a lot of teasing out of their symptoms. So, you know, as a GI, they'd probably be coming to me with bloating because G, uh, the adhesions, that was the leather of the seat, not me, just in case anybody heard that. Speaking of bloating. Oh, hey, <laughs> that, that, that gassy person, Taylor Reyes, is back on the show. Yeah. <laughs> no! Uh, so if they came with bloat, you know, if one of their major symptoms was bloating or constipation or they have that, like, ice pick up the butthole type symptom, because, you know, if you're ever just, like, walking around and you're like, oh, that's, like, if, if someone describes that to you, that can be endometriosis, like, around the rectum and that rectouterine. Fascinating, bone. because that is, you come to me and say that, I'm like, oh, you have proctalgia fugex, mm -hmm. which is spasm of the pubic rectalis muscle. Mm -hmm. One thing, spasming? that's the thing. They're like, why does it happen? We're like, I don't know. Yeah. You're having a butt spasm. Yeah. <laughs> Use your squatty potty. Um, and, the, and the funny thing is, Dang it, I'm not even realizing that. I'm not asking patterns of this because most people don't even realize it. They forget it. But proctalgia fugex can wake you from a dead sleep and it disrupts sleep when people have it. And they probably didn't come to see you after they had it just once. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so it's, uh, it's so I have them, I have my, oh, crap. Look at what I do. <laughs> I treat them with therapy. I have them actually sit on a pressure ball that's great. And make the pubo-rectalis muscle just basically put pressure on it so it stops. So I have people waking up in the middle of the night when they have this. Mm -hmm. And we either do a muscle relaxant like nitroglycerin locally. Yeah. Or do essentially a myofascial release on the anus. Huh? You're a pelvic floor therapist. Almost. <laughs> no, she's a black belt. I'm like a, yeah. I'm a blue belt. You're, you're an accidental pelvic floor therapist. <laughs> Can I get a t-shirt? Amateur <laughs> pelvic floor therapist. Oh, yeah, go. <laughs> kind of like when Eric was driving around with his van that said free candy. I'm like, dude, no, We're stop not, it. 
ever supposed to talk about that. <laughs> well, officer, the man was driving a van that said free candy and the passenger had amateur pelvic floor therapist. Never mind. It had no windows. Yeah. Anyway, all right, off, off the subject. All right, getting back to what you can do to help these people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, say their symptom is like the bloating or, or the, you know, that lower GI pain. A lot of it is one going through their, like, what are they eating? How much fiber are they, are they getting? What is their water intake like? And I'm going to be honest, like when I go to a provider for an issue and they tell me like, well, what's your water intake like? I'm like, that is not what's causing my issues. Like really, like it's not as simple as water intake. It's not, it's, it's more than that, but it can be a very significant Mm -hmm. piece of the puzzle, right? So fiber and water, electrolytes, like what, you know, think about muscle health, right? Because sure, your intestinal muscles aren't the same as your hamstrings, but they're still, they still require uh, sodium, potassium, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so we're gonna do a brief little rundown on- One quick thing on that really quick, just so that you realize, Andrew Huberman just had Andy Galpin on for that big long series of yeah. exercise. I've not gotten through it all, but he does have a whole segment on the fact that most people are underhydrating, especially mm -hmm. if you're an active person, especially if you work out, mm -hmm. you can essentially take your weight divided by 30 and you need that amount every 15 minutes while you work out. And then you start realizing how underhydrated most of us are. So I'm, that yeah. is mm -hmm. important. Yeah. And also, you know, depending on, you know, if you have the standard American diet, you know, you're probably getting plenty of sodium, right? But if you are eating more of a, you're making your food at home, uh, you're not getting the processed food, you could be undersalted, right? So making sure you're supplementing with an electrolyte. But anyway, so moving forward, we do a quick screen on what they're, you know, starting with the basics, you know, what are their uh, toileting habits like, but we're also going to dive into like, what is their pelvic mobility like? So how does their uh, low back move in relation to their, like their hips and their pelvis? Is there a lot of mechanical tension? So, so why, mm -hmm. how does that relate to endometriosis? Yes. So it can relate to endometriosis because the endometriosis can create adhesions and change the way your pelvic organs move, thus changing the way your pelvis moves. Mm. So one main symptom of endometriosis is low back pain. Mm -hmm. So it, in, I, I rarely get a patient who is constipated that doesn't have low back pain. And maybe the constipation isn't related to endometriosis, but it's something we have to consider. So from the physical therapy perspective, we want to make sure they have great mobility in their musculoskeletal system, but as well as their visceral system. So I do visceral functional mobilizations. Um, not every therapist does visceral mobilization. So when you are looking for a physical therapist to manage your endo, you do want to ask these types of questions like how do they practice, um, which on the I Care Better website, it'll the, there's bios for all the providers. Um, but when we do visceral mobilizations, it's not a massage of the abdomen because that's really too simplistic, but it really is looking at how are the structures moving uh, amongst each other and where where are things not moving? How can we improve that mobility? So we're not, we're trying to improve motility and mobility of the pelvic organs or abdominal mm. organs. So with motility, the analogy that I give my patients is if you think about like a jellyfish just chilling in the water, right? It's not going anywhere, there's no trajectory, but it's just chilling. It's not completely static. Mm -hmm. It still has that pulsatile motion, right? So we wanna make sure that you're, you're your, whether it's your intestines or your liver or whatever, when we're talking visceral therapy, that there is some type of rhythm, that there is some type of movement. 
right? So, and then mobility is more of like, how does a structure move within the cavity? So if you think about taking your bicep and you wiggle it along your humerus or your, you know, your arm bone, it should be able to glide across it. It shouldn't just be stuck. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. So we want to restore motility and mobility of the abdominal and pelvic organs. And that's something we do with those manual therapy techniques. You, you look like you're thinking very hard. Well, I'm thinking of several things. So I'm thinking of like, not to call anybody out, but like I happen to know somebody who is perimenopausal, mm-hmm. um, struggling with some chronic back pain in spite of working out a whole lot. And also accentuated had a hysterectomy due to increased size of um, uterine fibroids, fibroids. fibroids and seems to get worse at various times but seems to be increasing in nature of um, the perimenopausal period and now I'm thinking oh my goodness wait a minute what if that a lot of what you're talking about is possibly endometriosis and I mean, it's obviously I'm not going to name anybody, but it's my wife. So um, I knew, but we're not going to say names. So then I'm thinking about that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. So now because we're works out, stretches, always super active, kind of started happening worse after um, the, the, the hormone changes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That, that's why I'm looking at this going, hmm, how do we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot you can do, and so why would I be doing it? It's not like anybody I know. I'm just giving a theoretical person out there. I'm not going to add to your description in (laughs) any way. (laughs) Anyways, so tell me what to do. Okay, so you mean so with your wife? Yeah, so you know, I I would be really interested knowing you said she had a hysterectomy. She did did just recently. Yeah, like like within a year, a year ago. Yeah, a year ago, and. we won't get into it, but for whatever reason, six months before, transvaginal ultrasound had very small fibroids, and then out of nowhere, they just got a whole lot bigger. And out of nowhere, why isn't of, why nowhere. isn't she on my schedule? Yeah. I don't. Well, because I'm just learning about this shit. All right. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to hear it from her also. <laughs> um, I mean, so. Uh, I okay just to kind of stop my brain for a second are are we talking about how to treat your wife or like what I would do if your wife was in my we're just gonna use her name all the time aren't we I'm sorry her name is wife 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 Brown (laughs) we said that out loud right yeah several times (laughs) yes okay (laughs) I'm just thinking she has back pain that we're trying to figure out and she's fit and all this other stuff and it just seems to have gotten worse over the last yeah perimenopause is a beast like it it can it can really throw a wrench into things orthopedically or like in your musculoskeletal system in your hormones in your mortgage just everything it's just it really takes over but anyway yeah so, so like what okay so let's you know what perfect let's do a theoretical thing i send you a patient say hey taylor this person has some gut issues which tons of people have but interestingly enough um different systemic symptoms we won't get into tremendous detail about this, but there also are some pelvic floor stuff that seems to have gotten a little bit worse as well. Mm-hmm. And my concern is this could be endometriosis that has been not diagnosed. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And the, for the record, the hysterectomy was done robotic, so it's a limited visualization of the rest mm-hmm. of the peritoneal cavity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although it was easy to recover, that was the, the good part about it and everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, back in the day, the laparotomy would be the diagnostic everything, and you got to see it, but now we're doing everything so minimally invasive. Mm-hmm. So probably that could have easily snuck by. So I say I am um, suspicious that we could have an endometriosis component to this constellation of symptoms. What would be your, other than your diagnosis, where you'd ask the questions, you'd say the hydration, all these other things, you also suspect it. Where would you go from there? Yeah, I mean, it, and also a quick little thing, family history is incredibly important oh. with endometriosis. So if you have a mother, grandmother, sister that had endometriosis, you, you're you are seven to 10 times more likely to have endometriosis yourself. So you can also go back to family history if you're not sure if that could be a factor for you. Um, but I, you know, as far and like, so are you asking if are we trying to decide yes or no she has endometriosis? No, I'm trying to say that you believe she does. Yes. How would you treat it? Yeah. Which symptom? Oh, good point. Yeah. So back pain. Let's just back do pain. that. Yeah. So especially knowing that she had a hysterectomy, we'd want to get in there manually and look to see how, again, kind of jumping into that visceral work, like how are her organs moving in relation to her lumbar spine? Because if she has a, what, what sits right in front of the lumbar spine? It would probably be your gut. Right. So you could think about like mesenteric root. Yeah. That kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You think about where iliacus sits in relation to like, say left-sided iliacus in relation to descending colon. Okay. Right. And then you think about, so you think about pubic bone, bladder, uterus should, should be behind right that mm-hmm. behind that. And then rectum would be right behind that. And you think about how everything is just all smashed in there together. So just trying to reiterate how we want to make sure that there's restored mobility or at mm. least improving blood flow to that area or re-educating the nervous system. Because if you get on, like social media is such a salty place, you know, and there's just so many providers that say, oh, you can't do this. There's there's no research to suggest you can actually move this structure or that, you know, myofascial release works. I don't care. Whatever I'm doing, whether that I learned it is myofascial release works. So I'm going to say that. Or that like working on the sacrum, sacrum mobility, SI joint, low back, it it works. Whatever I'm doing, it works. However you want to call it, I don't care. But when you want to get in there and make sure everything is moving, that as she, um, like say she's going to bend forward or say she's going to raise her leg, how does her spine move? How does her stomach fold, right? So if you think about when you bend over, does your stomach like bunch up really hard or does it actually smush in on itself very nicely? So that when you have that tension, it can feed into back pain. If you're the mesenteric root or the surrounding structures are really t- air quotes tight, it can impact low back pain. Or even if it's just giving input to that those areas to let the nervous system know like, hey, like it's okay. Like things are going on, uh, like good things are happening here. Just that input alone can start retraining the brain to know that there's not a threat. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like where we're going? Yeah, totally. Well, okay. So like when we, we're going to have um, a different type of pelvic floor specialist, somebody that works in strictly defecation because the rewiring of the brain there, it's fascinating to realize how many people I see mm-hmm. that um, the muscles are actually doing the exact opposite of what their brain is thinking it's doing. And so when you have this protective mechanism down there, if you've got inflammatory processes from endometriosis, the body's trying to brace itself, protect it, 
and if there's scar tissue happening, then possibly mm-hmm. can't. Yeah, interesting. Well, and, and here's the other thing. Maybe in our little case study here, uh, you know, this might not be a symptom, but what you typically do get as a symptom with endometriosis is pain with some sort of pain with intercourse. Um, even if you have had a hysterectomy, whether, and a lot of that can be because the pelvic floor muscles have been clenching for so long mm. because of guarding against pain, because this can be an incredibly excruciating um, uh, condition. Uh, you have these muscles that have been guarding for so long, it creates an environment that can create painful penetrative intercourse. Or when, you know, say someone who still does have their um, uterus with an orgasm, you have that contraction, all that blood flow, it's gonna, you know, it's like talking to a structure that's already inflamed, Mm -hmm. you know? So with endometriosis, if you're trying to, when you're listening to someone's history, it's like, okay, you have pain with intercourse. Is it more of like just right at the opening or do you feel like your guts are getting stabbed? And if you feel like your guts are getting stabbed, it's like, okay, well, we want to consider maybe endometriosis a potential Mm. subject, or is it you're just like really constipated? Wow. That's impressive. I mean, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I I didn't know this. This is all new. Yeah. This is, I, I am going to go on record and say that after all these years of practicing, I have just dismissed endometriosis. I've just said it's going to make my colonoscopy difficult or not. This is the problem of the well, gynecologist. We're just not made aware of it. I mean, yeah. this is not something that we were told at all, really. I mean, mm-hmm. to be aware of, to look for, to well, have an application. Can you, we, sorry. No, no. I was going to say, I mean, I not to really go down this story too much because, I mean, we could talk about this forever, but I'm a pelvic floor physical therapist, right? I specialize in this crap yeah essentially and i didn't realize i had endometriosis until this past august and then i realized i had that moment of realization because a naturopath friend said you just got to cut that blankety blank out and i walked out called my surgeon or not friend but she's awesome i wish she was my friend i wish she'd be my best friend forever um because she's just a great human but i went and went out, called the surgeon that I knew, scheduled a surgery right then and there, or an evaluation because I knew I was gonna need surgery, had the surgery like a month later. A laparoscopic? And, mm-hmm. and uh, the symptoms I had been having had been going on for 20 years, hmm. 20 wow. years. And wow. I can't tell you how many specialists I had seen before the age of 16. And even as a pelvic floor therapist, because I had been dismissed by so many providers previously, even like, God love my OBGYN, but like, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. And she wasn't catching it. And I had been really acute for eight years. And it's like, well, it can't be this because, you know, nobody, everybody's saying it's not, or it's not coming up. And I don't want to self-diagnose. I don't want to be a hypochondriac. And what then, did your surgeon find? Um, category three. So it was in, it was not only, I also have adenomyosis, by the way. So we have that, but I chose not to do the hysterectomy at this point. Um, and let's see, gosh, I had an appendectomy because it was on the appendix and Mm. it was primarily on the intestines, bladder, uh, uterus, uterine artery, pelvic nerves. By the way, everything you're discussing there, you have to be a very talented surgeon to carve out this tissue around large arteries, nerves, bowel, bladder, all of these one 
too much of an aggressive approach and you've got yourself a very serious situation. And that's when I say that you need to vet. If someone is considering surgery for this, they need to vet their surgeon so extensively. And sure. they, so someone may say, oh, I can do an excision surgery. And side note, if it's an area that seems a little too complicated to me for me, for my skills, which it's important to recognize your skill level, mm-hmm. if it seems too complicated for me, I'm just going to ablate that. Well, no, 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 that's not a true excision surgery. Like you want all of it excised. And so to truly have a surgeon of that skill level, that's why we're talking about less than 50 in the US that can actually do that. Uh, Are most of those gynecologic oncologists? No. Oncologic surgeons, no, I should say? No, they're, they're OBGYNs who did a fellowship with uh, like specialty training in huh. excision surgery. Now, now there's also there, I, th- I believe, no, don't quote me on this, but I, I do believe that there are some like colorectal surgeons or general surgeons sure. that have advanced their training in this too. It's not just OBGYNs. Yeah. And I know that there are some like colorectal surgeons who should say like, no, uh, like, you know, other category of surgeons should not even touch the colorectal because sometimes people end up needing colon resections. Right? Well, I mean, we have, I mean, what we we have a a team of colorectal surgeons that are going to come on. We've um, been meaning to have them on here. And I bet you they say it all the time when they go in to do, because they do the true laparoscopic, especially if it's like a, a a colon resection, they get to look at everything. And I bet you, I bet you if we asked Dr. Macaluso, he's like, Oh yeah, I see, I see endometriosis all the time. And I bet you, because we're not talking like this and he's skillful enough to do this. I bet you he's like, well, I don't mess with that stuff because that's just going to, I mean, that that's just going to get me in trouble, Cause especially yeah. if they're not having symptoms or whatever. You know, I'm in there removing a cancer. I'm in there removing a recurrent diverticulitis. I'm removing a large polyp. Mm. But I bet you he'll say, yeah, that I, he can see it, a lot mm. of it. Yeah. That's well, super interesting. I had a friend who just, under she had, uh, last year she had surgery because they were going to remove a mass. It ended up being an endometrioma. Uh, they thought it was, they, they didn't know what it was, but they, they weren't suspecting endometriosis. They got in there. So she woke up from her surgery. They said, by the way, that mass was an endometrioma and we found category three endometriosis and we just went ahead and ablated it. And it's like, that, that's, I'm, ex, excuse me, <laughs> like that's an informed consent issue in my humble opinion. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's again, just to kind of create a sense of caution, not urgency, but just caution and awareness that you really need to be, your, you, you have to be your own advocate. Like you have to like listen to as much information as possible, read all the things. Another thing that we need to put in the show notes is Nancy's Nook on Facebook. Yes. That is one of the best resources you can get. It's a, it's not a support group necessarily, um, which support groups are nice, but you use it as a resource like you would Google in this yeah, Nancy's Nook. Nancy's Nook. So I love the way that you're approaching this. And I think the way you just described on how to uh, be your own a- uh, advocate and then invoke that level of authority and demanding the the appropriate informed consent, I would venture to say that most people specifically with this issue just don't know the questions to ask and don't know what it is that you should be looking for when you're vetting. I mean, I didn't. I'm So one of the things that I'm embarrassed about as a physician or I'm not embarrassed anymore, but I used to be embarrassed because this is just an insecurity thing when I don't, to to have the hubris to think that you understand something when in the reality is you don't. And this is a topic where I'm openly admitting, wow, I'm gonna reconsider this on a lot of people. Mm. And I love your humility to say as a pelvic floor specialist and endometriosis specialist that you didn't even consider it on yourself. No, 
and it's like the glass freaking shattered <laughs> like when I had that written it and it took someone who lives in the crunchy natural world to suggest surgery right wow so, you which know is I mean? a unique thing yes yeah and, and, and I think that even expresses how important it is to cut this stuff out from the root if you're able to some people aren't able to because either they're like life circumstances or financial circumstances because most not all but most excision surgeons are not covered by insurance so oh, you're paying out of pocket because it's an extensive surgery. Well, I and, can, you yeah. know what, in defense of the surgeons, we know how these CPT and ICD-9 codes go. It can be billed as a laparoscopic surgery with excision of benign lesion. And that's one fee. Yeah. You get paid this thing. You have a 90 day global. It might be, we won't even get into the numbers, but it probably barely pays the overhead of your time in the OR with your staff in the office. And to do it right, you're probably gonna be there for several hours. Yeah. Meticulously, if you're doing it right. Yeah. And then, you know, we sit there and go, oh, well, doctors should do this, but plastic surgeons, cash up front all the time. Plast you know, there's just certain specialties where people just go, oh yeah, well that makes sense. Well, this is like something that, yeah, this is fascinating if, to me. Because if you want it done, uh, the motto that the surgeon, your surgeon should have is do it once and do it right. Yeah. That should be their motto. Yeah. And it should be very extensive. Like they, they need that extensive training. You need to ask all the questions. Don't be a pain. It's your body. Like, because by the time someone gets to the point of deciding they need surgery, they've probably been dismissed by so many other providers. And I think there are some providers that just don't know. There's a difference between being gaslit and just being in front of a <laughs> provider who's just not aware. And I think that's important because this is this is a huge psychological battle as well. I mean, depression and anxiety and fatigue are also symptoms of endometriosis. And you think about where all that comes from. Mm. You know? well, rejection, not being believed, uh, enduring pain without any solution. I would imagine it's miserable. Mm -hmm. So I would like to close this with my favorite topic because I actually found some information on this. The role of the microbiome in relation to inflammation and its effect on endometriosis. Let's do it. You, yeah. Have you looked at all any of this at all? Yes. Oh, basically, so, so inflammation. Yes, inflammation. It's incredibly important. And as far as like, I'm excited to hear what you have to say because, as you know, my scope as a physical therapist, I can educate clients, patients on things they need to look at and which specialists to reach out for. So as far as what specific um, formulas or supplements or things like that, you know, I'm, that, I'm not the expert there. Yeah, I just, it comes down to the same thing. And it's not so much that it is, uh, this is the treatment for endometriosis, but we know that essentially all disease can be exacerbated by inflammation. We know cancer, heart disease, dementia, and endometriosis is not exempt from it as well. And so in our world, the research that we do, we now know that polyphenols play a very important role in it's anti-inflammatory potential, but you need the right microbiome for that to happen. So there are multiple articles discussing how polyphenols have been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects, which will help reduce the inflammation and pain associated with endometriosis. Mm. Uh, polyphenols can help reduce the production of pro-inflammatory molecules and cytokines, which ultimately decrease the inflammatory response produced by the endometrial tissue. So in other words, we keep coming back to the same thing. You need to attenuate how your body reacts to it. In other words, autoimmune. Yeah. 
we discuss this whenever we talk about Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or anything like that. Um, the reason why we get back to the dysbiosis, if you do not have the right microbiome, you cannot take advantage of an anti-inflammatory diet. So when Taylor said earlier that uh, you need to have an anti-inflammatory diet, that in theory is perfect, but if you don't have the right microbiome to break that diet down into anti-inflammatory components, then you essentially could be wasting your time. And then one little thing that I need to get further in because I just started to get into it, it's the modulation of estrogen and the effect of polyphenols on the appropriate modulation of estrogen. Not my specialty, and I just started to go down this rabbit hole, but basically, since endometriosis can be affected by estrogen, there is some studies that have shown that polyphenols have been shown to help with estrogen metabolism and estrogen balance. It's new to me, so I have to get further into that, but it was kind of fascinating to at least see that some people are doing research on endometriosis and the effect of a high polyphenol diet in relation to estrogen. So. It, makes me, you know, it makes me, when you brought, when you brought up that last uh, uh, theory around estrogen modulation, it made me think of DIM. And I wonder oh. if that would have any impact on that. And your cruciferous vegetables, which have a natural amount of that, I believe, if that couldn't play a role in that. Diendolmethane. Um, right? Diendolmethane something or other. I mean, that's just an old We callback. have a rule. We can only Google once on a podcast. Yeah, I'm that not is not do it again. a rule, but we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll stick with it today. <laughs> but I'm, I am curious. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll find something on that. No, that is actually fascinating because that is a, that is a um, component on, in cruciferous vegetables that is used to modulate estrogen. Mm-hmm. Maybe it plays a role with there. Maybe, yeah. I'm, this is this is wide open. This is really cool. We sit there and talk about, um, in case you're unfamiliar with this, we are really getting into how to, you know, Taylor is now our newest ally in the bridging the crunchy world with the natural with the allopathic world. I like your whole crunchy <laughs> analogy. Of crunchy that. world and needle world. I don't know. Yeah. How do we do that? So if it's the naturopathic crunchy world. Versus in this corner, the naturopathic crunchy world. And in this corner, it's the, the sterile, allopathic. Sterile instruments. I have no sterile, idea. Uh, Sandy cloth. Sandy cloth. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but, um, you know, like we, as we sit here and we think about different combinations, it'd be fascinating to work with somebody like Taylor to come up with our pelvic floor box. Yeah, you know, sure. we have the SIBO support box. We can come up with a pelvic floor box in the future. Of which we have sold out of the SIBO box three times now, or f- almost four times now. Yeah, so yeah, in case you're watching this, we have, a, there's a couple things that we would recommend. You said that we don't, but we're clearly, this is the research that we're in. This is the world that we do live in. We know that Atrantil Pro has the spore biotics, which help unleash the potential of the polyphenols. And our SIBO support box, which is a combination of polyphenols plus diamine oxidase plus immunoglobulin Y are all there to decrease the inflammatory process in the gut. These can all be found on kbmdhealth.com. Take a look at that. Um, I apologize if we run out of stock. We seem to not be able to keep the SIBO support box in stock right now, but we are working to make sure that we accommodate everyone. But it would be fascinating to get some data on people who have endometriosis and see if we can attenuate some of their symptoms. We're always looking for science. This isn't... Yeah, this is exciting. But I am going to, geez, I wish you would really just open up this larger clinic so we can just, you can train a bunch of therapists so we can, because now I'm going to be, basically, I'm going to call up everybody that was 
that I said, I don't know. And I'm gonna be like, I know, I think, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to go see Taylor, and she's going to find out. No, I mean, and that's. I think that's beautiful, though, because as you learn, I even had patients, because, I mean, I was treating endometriosis patients, and, I, and what I thought I was doing well, but when I learned how extensive this is, I did call up past clients who just kind of got on a maintenance home program, right? They're like, okay, well, if it flares up too bad, I'll call you up. And I, you know, it'd been three years and I called them and I'm like, hey, looking back at your chart, I really think you need to consider X, Y, and Z based on your history. You know, if you have more questions, I'd be happy to talk with, you know, talk with you. Or if you want to just keep doing your own thing, that's totally fine too. But I think like as, like humility is so important. Dude, okay. So this is quick side note, just about like me not understanding it at all. Right when COVID, right before COVID hit, I took the family to Puerto Rico and I said to make that whole surfing trip that we talked about. And, um, it was way tougher than I thought. These were not, <laughs> these were not baby waves. These were like, like seasoned waves. And I beat the shit out of myself. Nice. And then, um, also, you know, stayed there. We had an Airbnb. I dehydrated the shit out of myself through various means. <laughs> yeah, not just sunlight. <laughs> not just sunlight. Um, it's, yeah, I was able to dehydrate myself in a hammock at night. <laughs> but anyways, so um, then it's like a five hour flight back. And when we got back, we got back late. And oh my gosh, I just had this severe pain in my butt and I've been through stuff before and I'm like, ah, my piriformis is lit up. So I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. And I had the typical, I have a whole array of rollers and PVC pipes and balls because I'm all about all, I mean, with two athletes, I mean, we got two kids that are, you know, always playing tennis and all the stuff and I'm always beating myself up. I rolled everything, did whatever. And it just, I couldn't, I couldn't even sleep. And in fact, when I would try and lay flat, it would just trigger it. I'm just like, my gosh, did I do something to my, you know, sciatica or something. And then, so I went to my good friend, his name is Ron Tribendas. I need to introduce you to him. Mm -hmm. He is an incredible chiropractor and he's got a whole clinic um, performance chiropractic. They've got several therapists. In fact, Lloyd has seen one of the therapists now, not for this, but for her uh, shoulder. Um, I went in to go see him and he was like, he goes, what were you doing? And I was like, surfing. He's like, dude, you're too old to be doing that shit. Come on. And uh, it's a running joke, whatever. He's not going to say that to you guys. Trust me. <laughs> but um, he looks at me and he goes, roll over. And like, I was on my back thinking he'd hit my sciatica. And he's I was like, it's your piriformis. And he just dug in there and the thing just went away. So I had deep down a spasm, deep running into my pelvis, resulting in a pelvic tilt, which ultimately was causing sciatic pain down my leg. Wow. And he just released that and I just went, shit, I should have known that. And I was rolling the shit out of it and I was whatever. It just shows that even if you have a little bit of knowledge and you think you can do it, experts are experts. Yeah, definitely. So. Taylor Reyes is an expert. Where can everyone find this beautiful expert to help them with, well, TMJ? Well, we're, we're, we're going to bring her back on for the other part of the stuff that she's good at, which yeah. is we went with, start with, we went with pelvic, then we went with peritoneal endometriosis, and then we're going to get to the TMJ stuff that she's really good at next mm -hmm. episode. Mm -hmm. But where can people find you? Yeah, my website is firephysicaltherapy.com, and um, my Instagram is Dr. Taylor Reyes. Uh, Facebook is Fire Physical Therapy, and believe it or not, I am launching an ebook for an endometriosis resource in the next two weeks. That's it should be out soon, so keep an eye out. That's awesome. Yeah, 
Um, you and can that'll go to be my on website your, oh, yeah. to sign up for it once it's released. It'll be released by the end of the month for sure, you know, because March is Endometriosis Awareness Month. But it is just a rapid fire resource, kind of an outline, some stuff we didn't get to in the show. Um, more of like, hey, this is what you could be dealing with. Now go find, like go and do. Perfect. That's fantastic. So everything that uh, Taylor's just shared with you will also be on the show notes. You can always go to gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and show notes that associate that so that you can find these quick references. Taylor, thanks so much for coming back. Can't wait till you come back again. This has been uh, an excellent learning uh, seminar for me personally. So thanks Once a lot. again, the, like, I love that we share the earth with beautiful people like you, wonderful humans that can educate in a very approachable, palatable manner over something that clearly I am missing and I will own that. I need to um, send apology letters to a bunch of patients and then with your address. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Ken's going to be really, really busy. Anyway, that's going to be episode number 102. Taylor Reyes, uh, be sure to check the show notes and thanks so much for joining us on the Gut Check Project. Uh, Ken? Yeah, no, thank you so much. And as we discussed, always go to kbmdhealth.com. Take a look at the SIBO box. Take a look at Atron Teal Pro and the other uh, products that we have there, which are all built around protecting your brain, decreasing inflammation, and overall health. See you later. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.